Fecal microbiota transplantation is an effective treatment for recurrent Clostridium difficile infection. But in order to minimize risk and properly administer the treatment, there are many considerations physicians must keep in mind. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the authors of a practice article published in CMAJ on fecal microbiota transplantation for recurrent C. difficile. Dr. Susie Hota is Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network in Toronto and Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Susan Potenin is a medical microbiologist and infectious diseases physician at Sinai Health System and University Health Network and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. They are both joining me today from Toronto, Ontario, to discuss their article. Colleagues, hello. Hi. Hello. Dr. Hota, overall, what is the focus of this article you've written and published in CMAJ, and why did you want to write it? I think I'll address the second part of that question first. Um, both Dr. Potnin and I have really recognized that there's been a proliferation of news articles and internet reports that involve fecal microbiota transplantation for recurrent C. difficile infection and for other indications as well. And we've also noticed that not all of these pieces are really from credible sources or provide balanced views on the topic. So the, the incentive for writing this piece was we wanted to have a short digestible piece that we could provide clinicians with that would go through the basics of fecal microbiota transplantation, or what we refer to as FMT, for recurrent C. difficile infection. And in doing so, we also thought it would be a good opportunity to address some of the questions that we encounter frequently as physicians who perform FMT or are involved in this area um, from other physicians who are referring patients or have patients that they believe might benefit from the treatment. Dr. Potnin, can you explain what fecal microbiota transplantation is exactly and how it works to treat C. difficile? For sure. So FMT, as we call it, is involved taking the stool from a, a healthy donor that's been screened for diseases, mixing it with a, a diluent, typically it's a sterile saline solution, and then giving it to a patient who has a disease that has an abnormal microbiota of the intestine, or we call it a dysbiotic state. So for patients with C. difficile, we know that they're at risk of C. diff because they don't have a healthy microbiota of their intestine. So the idea behind how it works is we believe that by giving a healthy microbiota, we are able to replenish their normal healthy bacteria that provide a colonization resistance to C. diff. We think it's essentially like an out-competition of C. diff by these healthy bacteria. But we don't really know if it's really the bacteria themselves or whether it might be byproducts because of the bacteria present that then enable, for example, their immune system to outcompete C. diff. So the exact mechanism by which it actually works is still not well described. And how effective is fecal transplant for treatment of recurrent C. diff? There have been lots of studies, 10 randomized controlled trials to date, all with various different uh, parameters around them. And the efficacy ranges quite significantly from 44% out towards 96%. So this variability is, is because these trial designs have been quite different in which patients are included. For example, patients with acute recurrent C. diff or those that are on chronic suppressive therapy, um, how many 
fecal microbiota transplants they actually get, um, how much of the actual FMT they get, what dosage of stool from the donor. Um, there are also the duration of follow-up and other factors as in terms of which route they actually get their FMT, which we'll talk about a little bit more perhaps. Um, so there's lots of variation in those trial designs, which leads to the variation in the efficacy estimate as well. So the true effectiveness in terms of a standardized procedure is, is not necessarily something that we can say with, with certainty, but there's a certain um, literature with a range of effectiveness in that ballgame, as we, we mentioned, between 44 and 96 percent. Dr. Hota, how can doctors determine if a patient is a good candidate for FMT? I think the first step would be to confirm that a patient actually has a diagnosis of recurrent C. difficile infection, which seems like an obvious thing, but actually can be a little bit more complicated. I've had patients referred to me with a history of recurrent C. difficile infection, two or more episodes of, of C. difficile, uh, which would seem like it would be a qualifying uh, factor for FMT. But in reality, it turns out that they had undiagnosed inflammatory bowel disease or more commonly um, irritable bowel syndrome, which can often mimic symptoms automatically a recurrent C. difficile infection. Um, so that's a bit of a complicated area and probably the first um, node that needs to be dealt with. The next thing would be, of course, making sure that a patient wouldn't have major cautions or contraindications to receiving FMT. And although there aren't really very many hard contraindications, the things that people would look out for are severe bleeding disorders, a severe immunocompromised state, um, as well as structural gastrointestinal issues that might make it difficult or risky to actually perform an FMT. Um, and then some other things that you need to consider are, does the patient have any major food allergies that can't be controlled for in the donor stool, or is the patient pregnant, for example? And then the final thing that um, uh, is really important is to ensure that a patient truly understands what all the potential risks are for going ahead with an FMT. And that might include procedure-related risks, depending on how it's introduced into the system, but also risks that we may not be completely aware of, which is an interesting aspect. And, and that can include infections that might be transmitted from the donor stool to the recipient, uh, infections that we're not yet aware of in 2018, um, or it can be other health changes in health that might be associated with manipulating the gut microbiota. So ultimately, I think that's a lot for um, you know, physicians to, to grasp, and I think uh, if you don't deal with this on a regular basis, not everyone would feel comfortable having that kind of a fulsome discussion. And ultimately, the person who's administering the FMT will have to go through a complete discussion on risks and benefits in consenting a patient, but it's uh, important for everybody out there who might be considering this for their patients to, to understand and be aware of. So are patients required to see a specialist for this type of treatment? Well, if you look at the Health Canada guidance document that had been put out in 2015 uh, regarding FMT, they st explicitly state that FMT can be administered by any health practitioner who may treat a patient with a prescription drug. And that sounds like it opens it up to a lot of possibilities. And so depending on how the FMT is given, if it's given by enema route, for example, you know, potentially other health practitioners than even physicians can administer it. But is, you know, I think uh, what's important to keep in mind is that there is a certain amount of expertise that is required to procure the FMT donors and adequately screen them, to consent the recipients, to confirm that diagnosis of recurrent C. difficile infection, and to also ensure that there's proper follow-up after receiving the FMT. And I think for those reasons, it really ends up being specific infectious diseases or microbiology specialists or gastroenterologists who typically end up um, uh, doing this, and even more specifically, those who have an interest in this particular field. 
So, you know, unfortunately, at this point in time, there is no registry of FMT providers that's readily available within Canada, and uh, finding such providers can be challenging. So a lot of that happens through word of mouth. I've been hearing a lot of talk about the ick factor in receiving these transplantations. So how exactly do physicians administer fecal microbiota transplantation? So generally, there, there are four routes that you can actually introduce the FMT material into the gastrointestinal tract. One of them is providing it by enema route, an infusion through an enema catheter. The next would be colonoscopy administration. You can do it by the upper route by introducing a nasoduodenal tube into the upper small intestine or capsules. And the capsules have, I think, received a lot of interest recently. They're still considered experimental and not widely available in Canada yet, but hopefully will be the, the way of the future and, and potentially would get uh, some of the ick factor out of the, the equation. Um, there are other ways, other things to take into consideration in administering it. So sometimes patients are given a bowel lavage before they get their FMT. Uh, but still lack of standardization on how it's actually administered in terms of the number of times that you'd administer the FMT for a patient. And that varies from program to program or indeed sometimes from recipient to recipient. Dr. Potnan, I'd like now to turn to the donors. I'm wondering how you screen donors and when you do, whether you're focused more on the quality of the donation or on the risk. No, it's an excellent question, and I think it's also all overseen in terms of the complexity of making sure that we do have the right donors. Uh, there are guidance documents from Health Canada that um, anyone who is going to be processing stool for an FMT should be falling at minimum, and the recommendations include screening for any infectious disease elements that ultimately could be transferred through the FMT. And what we do, uh, and what and, and folks should also simulate, would be as screen the individual for risk factors for various bloodborne and sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, but in addition to the questionnaire and medical uh, discussions in that regard, we also do an extensive laboratory screening as well, um, as well as a physical examination. So it's really a combination of risk factor screens, physical exam, and um, blood, urine, and stool testing to assure that there are no transmissible pathogens that could be transmitted um, through the actual FMT. Um, in terms of how can one do that if you have um, a donor that's selected by an individual, because some people may want an individual donor, for example, to be their donor um, person to provide the FMT, um, it is something that um, uh, an individual physician would have to have the cooperation with the laboratory to assure that all the testing is done. In terms of programs where they're providing FMT on a regular basis, typically they've moved towards universal donors, whereby they have a number of donors who provide stool on an ongoing basis. And and then they will store those screen stools and provide them to various different recipients at a time that's convenient to that recipient. That enables some efficiencies gained in doing the screening, and they won't necessarily screen every single stool that's coming in. Instead, they'll screen the individual um, ahead of their initiation of, of donation, and then they'll screen um, sometimes um, at a various periodic times thereafter, sometimes before they release the stool. Others will do it periodically throughout the year as that donor, donor continues to donate to the program. So there's some very in terms of whether it's an individual donor or whether there is a universal donor involved. But the key element is that at minimum, anyone providing this should be following the Health Canada endorsed guidance document in terms of the minimum uh, number of pathogens that should be screened out. So 
you're basically saying that the quality measure is absence of risk. Is there something about the donor's particular microbiota or the effect of the donor after donating that uh, creates a super donor? And that's an excellent question. It goes back to our understanding as to how these FMTs actually work. And uh, currently, there's not a precise fingerprint of the microbiota that is associated with good outcomes better than others. And so there's not, at this point, a quality check to confirm that donors have a, um, a certain set um, microbiota profile, so to speak. What we know in general is that the higher diversity of the microbiota um, is something that is, in contrast to what we know is lacking in patients with C. difficile. And so certainly, some programs may be looking at um, donors who have that high diversity. Um, for example, ourselves in what we've done, we have looked at our donors and um, typically the, the donors that we had in our, one of our randomized controlled trials, for example, had a very high diversity, which reflects, I think, the healthy persons that we are choosing to be our donors. Um, having said all that, currently it's not a standard that people would necessarily screen those donor stools to know that they do have a uh, high diversity in the sense that we don't have a standard diversity index that would necessarily correlate with good outcomes. So it is something that is still being investigated and, and not yet standard. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned that there is some concern about infections that we don't even know about, we haven't discovered yet. What sort of organisms do experts like you have in mind? In terms of um, possible transmissible infections from an FMT, is that what you're alluding to there in that regard? Yes. Uh, so what we currently do in terms of our, our screening is we certainly screen simulating what we do for organ transplantation for any known infectious diseases, and we go beyond that because of the uniqueness of the fact that we are transmitting a stool product, and so we look for enteric pathogens and sexually transmitted pathogens that could be tr uh, transmitted from uh, rectal and or stool um, organisms. Um, in terms of other pathogens that are just emerging, such as uh, mirrors or Zika virus and things of that nature, where there may not be standard protocols to look for the presence of those particular pathogens in a stool product, um, the risk factor screening certainly is, is, is very helpful to reduce the potential risk of transferring some of the more emerging pathogens based on travel history, for example. Um, for others that, uh, again, may be higher risk profile novel entities we're not aware of, we certainly also will in, uh, in, in our program and others may have variable amounts of this is um, be very selective in our donors again from high-risk activities um, that may incur blood-borne pathogen or sexually transmitted pathogen transmission of, of emerging pathogens. Um, in terms of any uh, organ and or product from a human transfusion and or in this case uh, transplantation, there always incurs a risk of the unknown whereby we may not necessarily screen out everything because of the unknown pathogens that may ultimately be recognized in the future. That's a risk that does need to be discussed with the individual just as we do that with blood transfusions and or other organ transplantation um, situations. And from a, a quality control, um, it would be recommended that folks who are providing FMT do keep um, their donor serum and or their donor product um, in their freezer so that it retrospectively one can always look back if there is an emerging, emerging pathogen that's recognized and screen and ultimately be able to contact persons who would have received that product. We have that quality check in our program here in Toronto. So in your article, you do allude to a concern about other long-term effects that are still not well known. Is it confined to just a potential infection risk, or do you have other long-term um, considerations? 
Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point. I mean, it's amazing the amount of material currently being investigated and being published on microbiota in association with different diseases is is just increasing every year as you as you go through and look through the literature. Um, it's a very exciting field currently is understanding the interplay between the microbiota and the immune system and various different conditions. And they range dramatically away from just gut diseases such as C. difficile and inflammatory bowel disease uh, to diseases that perhaps you could argue would not be recognized previously to have any relationship to the intestine, such as uh, diabetes, obesity, mental illness, autoimmune diseases, and, and the list goes on. Um, so w there is this unknown potential association of dysbiotic states, which is that abnormal microbiota in the intestine, related to um, immune dysregulation and, and or other conditions that ultimately lead to these other uh, conditions. Um, not that anything is definitive at this stage, but there is this potential um, putative uh, association and lots of investigation is, is ongoing to really uh, better define the, the cause and effect of these associations. Given that, when you are giving an FMT with what we believe is a healthy microbiota, uh, we we have to recognize that there is that potential risk that we may be incurring uh, a change in a microbiota that might put a person at risk for one of these other putative-associated diseases or disease states. Um, and, and that's something that we believe strongly that we should be informing patients about because of the unknown association of the microbiota with these other conditions. In our particular program, we screen our donors very carefully, not just for the infectious disease uh, and activity that might be associated with infectious diseases, but we also do screen, for example, mental illness and obesity and diabetes. Diabetes, um, and certainly we are, we are looking for healthy uh, individuals who don't have even family histories of those potential comorbidities, et cetera, to try to prevent that potential of uh, uh, incurring possible harm in the future um, because of the unknown current uh, association of the microbiota in these conditions. We also um, have in our program a long-term follow-up study specifically, which we invite all pa patients to be involved in so that we can learn more and assure that we are providing a safe product without incurring unrecognized potential negative outcomes. So let's move on from uh, screening to procurement. How actually do you get the specimen from the donor? Do they have to come and sit in your lab until the, the right moment, or how is it done? <laughs> So we, we invite um, donors, if they so wish, to, to do exactly that, although most uh, choose to uh, provide their donation at home, and uh, we provide them with a, a kit to be able to then walk the donation to us in, in our uh, laboratory. Um, so it is an option uh, to definitely donate here, but most would choose to donate at home. And we ask that they, um, if it's something that's fresh, which we prefer in the morning, to walk it to us within a 24-hour period. Most uh, walk it to us within a few hours. Um, if it's something that um, they are not in the vicinity, uh, we ask that they actually put that into their fridge uh, before walking it to us if it's going to be incurring a delay, uh, and again, that it is provided within the 24-hour period from donation. We then go ahead and process it. We do a, a filtration step uh, using a machine called a stomacher. Uh, we then store that. We, we do use universal donors in our program. Um, we then store that in our freezers, and then when needed, um, remove it and, and add additional saline to provide it uh, via an enema format in our particular situation. Other uh, centers would do something comparable, um, but essentially, usually it's a fresh donation that's ultimately then typically uh, filtered and then frozen uh, in, until it's needed. And how long can you store the samples for? 
We've just completed a study looking at the impact of storing samples out towards two years and have shown that if it's frozen at a negative 80 degree freezer with a glycerol cryoprotectant, which is what we use routinely um, for ensuring viability of organisms, um, the actual viable content of that uh, filtrate removed at two years is essentially equivalent to that which was provided to us fresh. Um, so we're, we're confident that we are able to store for at least that time period in those conditions. Um, at a a freezer of negative 20, which is what some laboratories might do, um, having that potential um, duration of, of storage as a convenient tool is not as clear-cut, um, and without using glycerol, it's not necessarily as, um, as efficacious in keeping that viable organism. So there's certainly, um, mo most programs right now, if they are using freezers, they're typically not really needing to wait that long before giving it and administering, but it's reassuring that there are uh, conditions that would maintain free, frozen fecal transplants for at least two years and still maintain their variability. Early in the interview, you, you mentioned that it's not known yet whether the benefit that comes from FMT is due to the presence of the microorganisms themselves or of a certain product or products that they might produce. Are you aware of any studies that are attempting to, to parse this out? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great uh, a great point just to reiterate, and, and again, just in terms of just reflecting on my comment I just mentioned, um, we're looking at the viability of organisms over that uh, two-year period, and the question is, do we do we have a sense whether the byproducts and or whether it's the viable organisms and the byproducts that are then produced thereafter that are key, um, and, and we certainly aren't measuring the byproducts at the two years to know whether they're still present, but presumably if you have the viable organisms, they're also going to incur those byproducts. Um, so yes, in terms of understanding better, there, there are persons who are trying to investigate that further. Um, in terms of having a, an immediate answer, I'm not familiar with anyone who's at the stage of having the aha moment yet uh, of really determining and of, of really being able to find out what the key component is. But there's certainly a lot of interest and a lot of study looking exactly at that. Thank you. Dr. Hota or Dr. Potnan, do you have any other comments to add to this interview? I just to mention, just to reiterate what we talked about, is if that's okay, Susan, then I'll give it to you. Is is the the issue of FMT in terms of our discussion today is really focusing on recurrent C. difficile infection, but putting it back to what you had discussed earlier uh, in terms of the potential association with other conditions, as uh, as the research uh, continues and to look into that, I, I, I believe that we'll see a lot more about FMT, not just with regard to C. diff, but possibly with regard to these other conditions um, in terms of being at least in trial format, if not possibly a, a, a novel therapeutic that may be indicative um, in, in those various other conditions as well. And certainly, as, as Susie alluded to before as well, the, the whole issue of packaging this into a, a different format, like capsules and the like, will be the next kind of emerging, I think, uh, discussion about how best to administer, and, and certainly as we learn more about what the magic bullet is and within the FMT, we may see further, um, less ick factor moments, as you mentioned before, and, and more fine-tuned uh, ways to administer the, the microbiota and or their byproducts. Dr. Hota? I think my comment's a little bit along a different vein, but it's actually um, a more practical thing that I think is important for clinicians to know about and how access to FMT for recurrent C. difficile is still limited today. Um, and there are really two factors that I think are driving that. One of them is that there isn't yet a funding mechanism consistently across Canada uh, for FMT programs. So I think a lot of programs are, are funded through research and hospitals are absorbing costs of that. And, uh, and so that limits to some degree how many places can actually offer this procedure for patients. 
And then the second issue is coming back to, we've had a lot of discussion about the donor program. And um, because of how the screening happens and, and what the commitment is for donors, there are a lot of challenges to recruiting and retaining donors and enough donors that you can actually support the clinical demand. So that is a, a huge factor, I think, in terms of implementation of FMT programs. And uh, there needs to be definitely enough attention and resources that are put towards that if this is going to end up becoming a standard of care. Thank you, colleagues, for doing this. Our pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Susan Potenin, a medical microbiologist and infectious diseases physician at Sinai Health System and University Health Network, both in Toronto. Dr. Hota and Dr. Potenin co-authored a practice article published in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts in Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes and leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.